I like that Josh turns on his video to scowl at us. That's uh, that's strong producer mode. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibovitz. Misha, 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 Misha. Happy Chodesh Adar. You should be clear, of course, this is Adar Rishon, right? First Adar. Don't let people think it's second Adar this year. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see how this one goes. You know. <laughs> if we like it, we'll have a second one. I can't talk until you introduce me, so you got to introduce me. Sorry. <laughs> and tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnett. Okay, when is a door not a door? When it's when it's a jar. When it's a dar. When it's a dar. <laughs> when, it's a dar when it's a dar. Your host, Shaney. Today on the show, we've got some massive Jew-Gentile action here. Our Jew of the Week is Carl Bernstein. You might know him as half of Woodstein, to quote from the great movie, All the President's Men, half of Woodward and Bernstein. He's the investigative journalist who uh, who broke the Watergate scandal for the Washington Post back in, in the years just pre-Mark Oppenheimer, in the early 70s. But he's had a, a major career since. And this week, he joins us to discuss his new memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom, which is a delightful romp through his early years from copy boy to cub reporter. And our Gentile of the Week, this is at least as important, is Jürgen Kraus, a <laughs> semi-finalist on the most recent season of The Great British Baking Show. I love, I love how you can't even say his name without doing the fake German accent. He is the Gentile responsible for bringing the spirit of Passover to co-host Paul Hollywood. Anyway, Jürgen is the Anglo-German who won the hearts of everyone everywhere, married to a Jew. And did not win the prize, the Master Baker, yeah? Just because really the Brits are the biggest anti-Semites. That totally. was his freaking competition. I'm sorry, the real winner. I'm, I'm a Jürgen Truther. Er ist kein Master Baker. Who did win? The Italian, of course. Oh, the uh, right. Giuseppe, right? Well, I mean, he was great. And he had that cool... It's basically Eurovision, but for food. <laughs> it's basically World War II, but like with a bizarre ending in which the Italians somehow prevail. But with Linzer tarts. What I always want to know when I'm watching the Great British Baking Show is how do they pipe all of that gas and electricity into the middle of the meadow where they're all set up? Because they're set up in this tent supposedly in the middle of this, you know, basically in the middle of the, the outer fields of Downton Abbey. And yet somehow it's equipped with proofing drawers. Look at you pulling off terms like proofing drawers, like a master baker. I learned about the proofing drawer this season. There was a lot of proofing going on. Guys, can I tell you where I've been? Please. I was in Mobile, Alabama where my Uncle Bill, Bill Oppenheimer, last mentioned on this show because Talking Heads drummer Chris France, a recent Gentile of the Week, went to high school with my Uncle Bill, who's mentioned in Chris France's memoir. But Uncle Bill, who is a, a, a big macher down in Mobile, Alabama, put together this amazing coalition of, I think, 14 churches and synagogues to bring me down to talk about my book, Squirrel Hill. It was basically the interfaith ball of the year. I met pastors, I met reverends, I met fathers and priests and rabbis and rebbies and, and nephews and niece. It was really something. And I hung out with my family. I have a lot of cousins down there, Uncle Eddie, Uncle Bill, their kids, their beautiful grandchildren. It was so much fun. I also saw two of the houses where my late grandfather, Jimmy Oppenheimer, lived. I saw the house where he lived with his third wife, Sarah. And then I saw the house that he lived in after he and Sarah split. I was going to say after Sarah threw him out, but I don't know exactly how it went down. <laughs> there were several Sarahs, right? There were more than one Sarah, if I no, recall. No, no, there were two Eleanors, a Sarah, a Ray. Wait, there were six wives. A Leah, a Rachel. <laughs> no, no, no. There were no, there were no Chavas or Leahs or Rachels. Anyway, it was lots of fun. And I spoke from uh, the, the Bima of St. Ignatius Church. So I want to say that Mobilians, Mobilians are the, the best people in the world. They were so they were so gracious. But then I got back and I went to shul last Saturday. I was one of 13 people there because it was about to blizzard. And my friend Ilan said, oh, Mobile, you know the song about the Jew in Mobile, right? Who helps make the minion? And I <laughs> said, no. And he's like, oh yeah, that's that's like one of the great Jewish novelty songs of all time. Ilan then sent me, after Shabbos, Ilan sent me the link. And, and now we have to introduce the world to the Jewish group Schlock Rock's song, Minion Man. Let's have a listen. I asked the man, I saw how many Jews in this town. He said to me, there used to be a minion around. But one of us passed away and we've been feeling By the way, Schlockrock was like what made Hebrew school. That's what I remember from Hebrew school. 
They'd put like a cassette in the thing and they'd play some schlock rock. They put the cool in Hebrew school. <laughs> when I saw that Alan sent me a song that was on an album called Schlock Rock, I assumed it was a compilation of schlocky songs. I didn't realize there was a band. Yeah, Schlock Rock. They're the home of Jewish rock and roll. It's basically like the Jewish uh, schoolhouse rock. I mean, little little did I know. I certainly hope that members of the J. Crew who have Schlock Rock memories send them in to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. I got to tell you, this, this song triggered me a little bit. The song, as you now know, having listened to it, like me, obsessively, <laughs> since you sent it to us, Mark, a couple of days ago, is about a man who arrives in said wonderful southern town and then is never, ever allowed to leave again because simply he's the 10th man and they need him for a minion. Now, I daven mincha, not every day, but, you know, frequently at a very, very small minion. And often there's this kind of like psychological drama in which you arrive at three promptly. Like, okay, this is going to take seven minutes because I have a lot going on today. And they're like, oh, oh, wait, wait a minute. No, no, we're just one man short. Just wait here. And they're like, it's 3.45. It's 5.30 now. It's like Wednesday. Can I please go? When's he coming? When's the 10th man coming? And you feel like such a dick if you're the one walking out before we've actually done Mincha. But hey. And the second you leave, the 10th is going to walk in. That's how it is. So I don't think I was the 10th Jew in Mobile. I was probably the 104th there and I didn't meet all of them, but it was, it was good times. Now, while I was down there schmoozing with Mobile Intelligentsia, Stephanie, you were on an auction site trying to, trying to rescue our patrimony, right? So I have to say the most Jewish media headline that ever Jewish media was this one, uh, RBG's library is being auctioned online and includes more than 30 books about Jewish topics. And so I naturally clicked on this, this auction of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's personal library. And what I was delighted to realize was that lot 112, which is just called Judaism, a group of books <laughs> on Jewish, Judaism and Jewish subjects. I mean, the stuff in here is amazing, actually. Like there's her law review that she's written in. Like basically there's all these books that people have inscribed to her and given to her. So anyway, when I was looking at lot 112, I saw the copy of our book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia, which we sent to her when it came out. And she actually wrote back with a very lovely note that was like, thank you for this book. It's an honor to be included. The note actually said, Stephanie, consider this a restraining order. Never, <laughs> ever write me again. This is a cease and desist letter from the Supreme Court letterhead. I know the Secret Service. Don't do this again, please. I have to say, we were among amazing company. First of all, in the photo, we are smack between. We are nestled between the Diary of Anne Frank and a book called The Rothschilds, which is like, I have to say where we want. Like, I want to be snug in between the two. Um, That's right. It's kind of amazing. There's a book called Next Year, God Willing, which to me is like <laughs> the most amazing thing. So then there's also a book called Ruth Talk, which is not about the justice. It's actually, you know, the subhead is questions and answers on the book of Ruth. Um, so anyway, a lot of these books were inscribed to her. And according to the auction notes, the newest Jewish encyclopedia has a book plate of Ruth Bader and Martin Ginsburg. And so I thought, we need this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, on these auction sites, they're very legitimate. You have to like submit an application basically before they'll let you start bidding on something. So I uploaded my driver's license. I made an account, didn't say anything to anyone. And then the next morning, woke up to, well, didn't really sleep, so didn't really wake up. Shout out to your girl, Edith Cohen. Woke up very sleep deprived with a note in my inbox that my online account had been approved. And so I was like, mm. you know what? I am going to bid on this freaking set of books. And I did. I didn't really think at the time, like, can I expense this? I didn't, that was, those were questions that were not, not top of mind. Totally, you can expense this. Like, yeah. I'm going to spend the entire payment I got for writing this book on buying <laughs> one copy of this book. But so many other books too. So anyway, so I was kind of, so I, I, I made the bet, $3,500, which is a lot of money. And I was like, oh, haha, this is funny, funny. And then hours passed and it was still the top bid. And I kind of had this moment of like, oh, is this actually going to happen? Um, am I prepared to spend this kind of money? And I figured, you know, we could auction off the rest of the book. Like, how fun would it be if we did a giveaway? Like, there's so much content here. And then about like a half hour before it ended, that number started going way, 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 way up. And the way, winner way ended up, up paying like $8,500. I don't know, though. I feel I, I would have chipped in a thousand. Liel would have would have chipped. I, we, we should have worked this harder, I think. Robert would have foregone his salary for the next six months and we would have made it happen. It would have, you know. But then I decided that the only thing funnier than winning this book was being outbid 
on our own book. <laughs> so I've really like ri- riding that tide ever since. By Antonin Scalia's son, who now owns our copy of the new. I was going to say, I want to find out who has it and let's go visit them. Yeah, I think we should find out because I want to know. This story awoke two feelings in me and I'm proud of neither of them because uh, they're both <laughs> petty and, and say a lot about oh, please, what a share. terrible I person <laughs> I am. You know, the first thing is I'm looking at it and, and my first thought is, you know, for a justice who spent a lot of time sort of talking about how her Jewishness influenced like her jurisprudence and her thinking about law. I know exactly what you're going to say. And I totally agree. Like you have 12 books about Jews. <laughs> you have like 8,000 freaking books about Gloria Steinem. And you don't even have like a copy of like Talmud for beginners, like something. My eight-year-old kid has a more serious Jewish library than Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's horrible thought number one. It's not even important to me that she read the books. Just for appearance's sake, shouldn't Correct. you have Owned one of those them. copies of Jacob Neusner's translation of the Mishnah just to sit there, just, spine just uncracked. Just have on your shelf. Just Correct. to have on your shelf, just to signal to people that you care. You don't have to read it, Madam Justice Ginsburg. Completely Just agree. have it on the shelf. Guys, she has books called The Jews of Oregon. She has a lot of... Clearly gifted <laughs> to her by the Jews of Oregon. <laughs> she has Torah and Constitution. She has Jewish justices of the Supreme Court. I think that you guys... Yeah, with, with the Ruth Bader Ginsburg entry, like, earmark. Now, look, <laughs> I, 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 I want to lead into horrible thought number two. Horrible thought number two is some people have, like, the, their worst nightmares. Like, they die in a freak accident, and then someone looks at their browser history and finds out who they really were. <laughs> My nightmare scenario is exactly this. I die, and then for some reason, someone auctions off my library and you get to see some of the books that I just couldn't bring myself to get rid of. But I'm like mortified by the fact that I own like I have six books about golf. You know, that scares me. That is mortifying. But do you still have the the copy that we shared of Jenny Garth's autobiography? Is that, that still I'm in the library? That's that- next to the Mishnah. <laughs> That's, Jacob that Neusner's is the Mishnah. Condensed Mishnah. No, but do you know what I mean? Like, that's the ultimate judginess because you're no longer there to defend yourself. People are like, oh, he read that? Oh, look. No, you're like, that was ironic. <laughs> he never really cracked the, the spine on uh, this copy of Karamazov. Like, it's really terrifying to me. How has he been doing a Talmud podcast? He hasn't even opened his Talmud. <laughs> look, look at this. <laughs> it turns out in. it's not the Talmud he's been quoting from. He's just been making <laughs> shit up every day. <laughs> Friends, news of the Jews this week, so chock-a-block of news of the Jews. And we're, we're going to really click through a bunch of really disturbing items before we get to the, the one that has really been underreported. And we're going to really, I think, break some important new ground. But first, we do have to get through all of these stories that have been clogging your social media feeds that are, that are at the top of everyone's mind. Liel, do you first want to take us to England? In England, home of casual anti-Semitism, a quote-unquote loud, loud academic was awarded more than a hundred thousand pounds, which I believe is, I don't know what, $30 for unfair dismissal. Here's the story. This comes to us from, of course, The Guardian. A senior academic who says she was sacked from her post in the university's physics department because of her loud voice has been awarded more than a hundred thousand pounds after winning a claim for unfair dismissal. Could you guess of which uh, ethnicity, persuasion, faith said professor Dr. Annette Plout is? It so happens that Annette Plout is of the Hebrew persuasion, is a fellow Israelite. For as The Guardian reported, Dr. Annette Plout told The Guardian that she had, quote, a naturally loud voice that came from her middle European Jewish background and claimed it was the combination of her being female and loud that led to her dismissal from the university. Now, we've tried to book Annette Plout and we have the producers working on this. I absolutely want to get her on the podcast. First of all, to hear if like her voice is actually really loud. <laughs> you know, does she, is it yeah, actually like, what high decibel, decibel? is she registering <laughs> does, But second of all, I just want to say like, in what universe do people get fired from jobs teaching physics because they're loud? My, when I was in college, my physics professor was unnaturally soft and I always wanted him to speak up. This is really a fireable offense in England. Is Are they, they're so into being restrained and subdued and mumbling. They're so into being soft talkers that you get fired. Well, it's the mumble core curriculum. <laughs> it is. My favorite part of the story is the rest of her quote where she says, in New York or Germany, where I have lived and worked for years at a time, the loudness of my voice was never mentioned even once. So like, yes, New York, again, she's like, in Germany, no one was like, this loud Jew better leave our university. Even there, they didn't do it. So, you know, I think this is a crazy story. I We obviously have to talk to Annette Plout and hear more about this. My, my first instinct was like, I don't believe she was actually that loud. 
And I don't believe that Jewishness is really what, if she was that loud, I don't think that her Jewishness is a proper excuse. I, I just think there's something amiss here. Like even in the most anti-Semitic places, I don't think that the volume differential, I don't even think that stereotype, like pushy, fine. Okay, there's there's a stereotype. Cheap, there's a stereotype. But how loud would you have to be to trigger an anti-Semitic physics department. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Let, let us let us also recall that this is the the first European country to alight on the idea of expelling all their Jews. They did it first, way before, like hundreds of years before it was cool. Like they really don't like Jews. I could see like, oh, Philip, she's a little bit loud, don't don't you think? It's this all is the craziest story. It's such a crazy. The story. Great British layoff. Also, she and this I, I this is here a really like deep deep scholarship here, but. She says that it was her Middle European Jewish background. Now, is she is she so is she a Yekka? Is she German Austrian? Because they're actually not historically. They were always like we're the quiet Jews. It's those Eastern European Jews who are so loud. Those greeners, so, exactly those just off the boaters. So I actually want to know like where are your people from? Because if they're from Hamburg or Mainz, are you trying to freeload on the Eastern European stereotype? But maybe, but then again, anti-Semitic Brits don't really draw the distinction. And I don't think she's from Eastern Europe. I think she, she's from Western Massachusetts. I think that's the truth. <laughs> it turns out she's from Springfield. We're going to sit down over a fribble and have this out. No, but I, I don't, I really don't take this lightly. It sounds like something very horrible went down. And if anyone has an in, what happened was Exeter deleted her email account when we tried <gasps> to find her or she hid it, I should say. So one of the two. They just muted it. It's fine. <laughs> they just told her to hush. They just told her to tone it down like a proper Brit. So if anyone has a connection to Annette Plow, we we, we want to get to the bottom of this. We want her to be a Jew of the week. Also, let's bring back that loud Jew stereotype. Totally. I want to be pushy. I want to do, I want to do it all. I want to have it all. We're doing our part. Um, but moving over to the United States, it's not that we have one story as good as the loud Jewish physicist story in England. It's that we have five such stories, and we're not going to be able to give them all due attention this week. We promise we'll come back to the best of them next week or the week after. Among other things, self-proclaimed hillbilly Senate candidate J.D. Vance accepted the endorsement of Jewish space laser theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene in his race for Ohio Senate. The book Mouse about the Holocaust, the famed graphic novel by Art Spiegelman, was banned from school curricula in Tennessee. Whoopi Goldberg then, in discussing that on The View, semi-melted down and made bizarre claims about the Holocaust, and it's not about race. It's actually about lots of other things. Um, it, it was just one of those weeks where, from Tennessee to Ohio to the Hollywood set of The View— the Jews were in the news and never in like a happy, fun way, never in like a, a Jorgen British baking show sort of way, but only in, in the worst possible way. Oh, I don't know. Look, all these uh, stories prove that, you know, the stupid in America has become endemic, but, but the Jews always rally. We always, at the very last moment, in the third act of the movie, we come amidst a week of horrible, stupid, reprehensible, outrage-inducing, shitty news stories to produce one, one tender masterpiece, one one bit of news so great, so so heartfelt that it would it would make even the hardest cynic smile with glee. Can I can I take this one, please? What is that news item, Leo? This is a news item brought to you as always, courtesy of my people. And here we go. <laughs> United Airlines flight to Israel diverts due to self-upgraders. And the story from the news website, One Mile at a Time, a blog devoted to airline <laughs> travel, goes, The incident involves United Airlines flight UA90 from Newark to Tel Aviv yesterday evening, Thursday, January 20th. Operated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the flight departed from Newark is scheduled, but then problems arose after takeoff. According to reports, two passengers tried to self-upgrade to business class, thinking that because the cabin wasn't full, they should be allowed to sit there. Of course, the crew told them that's not how it works, but the passengers refused to comply and returned to their original assigned seats. Witnesses on board claimed that these passengers then rioted, which is the plot to a great <laughs> movie yet to be made called Israelis on a Plane, starring uh. Samuel L. Jackson. In a world where air travel is slowly recovering from a global pandemic, Israelis are desperate to get out of Newark and back to Nahariya. Sir, can I get you a beverage or some peanuts? These guys are taking back business class. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. Please be seated and check to see that your seatbelt is securely fastened. But listen, uh, the seat is empty. 
Attention, this is your captain speaking. Don't make me turn this plane around. Get those motherfucking drillies off this motherfucking plane. The terrifying true story of two Jews and their pursuit of illicit comforts and a little more legroom. Israelis on a plane coming to an in-flight entertainment system near you. My favorite piece about this is that they they turned around, like the plane turned around, went back to Newark to offload the unruly passengers, who, by the way, were then arrested <laughs> when they got home. But this this blog, this you know our new favorite news source, has sort of like a picture of the flight map, and they've basically just made like a big arrow around the eastern seaboard, according to the, <laughs> according to this graph. And so like, maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. By the way, they're not necessarily Israelis. Oh, no, no, no. Stephanie, I'm sorry. They're necessarily Israelis. <laughs> this is, come on now. This, Stephanie's this trying to get their people. back. And Liel's like, no, no, no. These are definitely the Israelis. These are not the Americans on LL. But listen, <laughs> uh, the seat is empty. Why am I not sitting there? There is no one sitting there. I sit there in the plane. Do you know what my favorite thing about this flight is? We hear a lot about LL drama. This was United Airlines. Like, this wasn't... (laughs) But here's my question. Liel, these were rookie flyers, though, right? Because serious flyers know that you can't self-upgrade just because the seats are empty. You have to have paid for them, right? Otherwise, chaos would ensue. No, Mark, you're completely wrong. They're rookie flyers, but not for the stupid reason that you just shared. They're rookie flyers because everyone knows that you wait until at least two and a half hours into the 10-hour flight after all the students have gone to bed. (laughs) Of course. All the air crew is sleeping, you know, upstairs in their little cubby thing. And then you just go and you sleep and no one says a word. Everybody knows that. I have a theory. Everyone's worst impulses come out on airplanes. You're in like a locked metal box and you're with all these people. And that's when people get anti-Semitic. And that's also when people get crazy. <laughs> like there are so many fights on airplanes. Except for one man. That, that man would be me. I am a different and a significantly better person on a plane. First of all, all I want to do is sip tomato juice and read books, which is totally not my instinct on any other. I mean, the books, yes, but the tomato juice, not my instinct on any other surface. Then I I love davening for long periods of time because I do feel like childishly, like I'm a little bit closer to God. And I always, I also get like a, I get very zen on planes. I'm just very calm. I just wait for everything to. Oh, I remember one of, on one of our early episodes, you said that if a plane were going down, you would just start singing Moshiach, Moshiach, and you'd be fine. You just feel like you're right with the universe. And everyone would be like, that big dude crashed the plane. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Carl Bernstein is the famous investigative journalist who helped break the Watergate story. He's also been played in two movies. He's He's been portrayed by more people in more movies, certainly than Bob Woodward has. He's a legend, and he has a new book out called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. A couple weeks ago, Liel and I had a great powwow with Carl Bernstein, our Jew of the Week. Have a listen. So I'm trying to get a bead on you as a young man, because we know from that prior memoir that your parents were leftists. You were serious in a sense. You were attuned to segregation and and racial injustice, but you were an absolutely atrocious student who barely got out of high school. You spent your time on the local version of Bandstand. Were you an intellectual kid? Were you a cerebral kid? Like, I don't get the sort of bad student, indifferent to school, but also hyper attuned to the world around you. Well, well, it's more than bad students. Because when I went to work at the Evening Star in in August of 1960, I sort of had one foot in the classroom, one foot in the juvenile court, one foot in the pool hall. So I was headed in a not great direction. And intellectual, I'm not sure I've ever been an intellectual. I I probably have some intellectual tendencies, let's put it that way. It was very intellectual view to get it. You got a D in phys ed. I mean, that's a real, that's an intellectual. That, that's, that's true. That's by not going. That's how you get a D in phys ed. I was, I was going to ask, cut how class. do you get a D in phys ed? <laughs> you cut class, especially during the soccer season, because it's very cold. I can remember this. And the soccer ball, and you're wearing shorts, and the soccer ball would hit you in the thigh, and you said, hell with this. Did, did Judaism mean anything to your family? In this sense, that I went to a left-wing shula meaning a, really a school 
that was called the Young People's Synagogue of Washington, which was actually listed on the Attorney General's list of subversive organizations. My mother had gone there too as a girl. It had been founded by socialist uh, Jews, and mostly you did a lot of folk dancing. There, there was not uh, a religious component. It was about Jews as, as a people, cultural aspects of Jewish history. But then when I, on my 11th birthday, we moved from the city, suddenly we moved to a middle-class, largely Jewish neighborhood in Silver Spring, Maryland. And suddenly all my friends in school were having bar mitzvahs. So I'd been getting a lot of presents too. And I decided I would, I wanted a bar mitzvah. And my parents who were atheists uh, were adamantly opposed to it offered me a trip across the country if I didn't do it. And I insisted. And so I took a crash course from age 12 and a half to 13, so I could be Barbitsford, and I was. Uh, that night, uh, there was a reception at our house, and the rabbi came upstairs and asked me how much money I'd gotten in uh, for <laughs> presents, and said, Did, didn't I want to contribute to the building fund? for the Montgomery County Jewish Center. And that was about it for my fling with organized religion. So I today have <laughs> what I consider a kind of spiritual life, but it doesn't have anything to do with organized religion. But, but you know, I cover a good deal of that in, in this memoir that I wrote in the mid-1980s. I was probably too young at the time to write a memoir. But this book is totally different. This is about this kid. Facing history, a kid in the newsroom who at age 16 in the capital of the United States gets the greatest seat in the country and has it for five years. My apprenticeship in the newspaper business, the most formative period of my life, 1960 to 65, and also formative of the country, perhaps. The country as we know it today, those five years, the civil rights movement, the War in Vietnam begins, the anti-war movement, the election of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It was a period in which I had this seat, as I call it, with the most amazing things happening around me, seeing and learning about great leaders and not so great leaders. Now, here's what absolutely captivated me about this book. You covered all these kind of monumental events in the history of this country and learned this craft so well. And you did it not despite of having no official formal education, but perhaps arguably because you had no official education. And, and here comes, you know, Woodward, uh, someone who you know famously went to Yale. Looking at journalism today with its, you know, super abundance of credentialed, uh, degreed individuals, it is a very different feel. It's almost impossible to imagine a kid who, whose transcript says, you know, academically dismissed. And thank you, by the way, for including that in the book. Could, could you please tell us how you think this, this shift in the profession from, from kids with curiosity and, and common sense to the products of, of an educational elite system, how did that change journalism? Is, is there like a class element that, that is kind of twinging everything that we see? Well, first of all, it, it was changing when I went to the star. I was five years younger than the other copy boys, five years younger than any of the young people on the staff, seven years younger probably than any of the young people on the staff. And I was the last person to become a reporter, even for one minute. I was a reporter during the summers at the Star. But I became the last person without a degree at the Washington Star. This was already occurring in newspapers across the country, hiring college graduates only to be reporters. When I went to the Washington Post, the only reporter there in the last six, seven, eight years who had been hired without a college degree. So it had started to change already and, and to really deleterious effect in our profession. Because I'm not saying that everybody in a newsroom ought to be a dropout or shouldn't have a college degree, but there ought to be a mix because of the experience brought by people who have not been formally educated 
at the level of college, not to mention in the Ivy League with its elite notions as well as its elitism period, particularly in that period, because uh, the Ivy League colleges at that, you know, they, they were largely, if not altogether, segregated. They largely, the Ivy League got wealthy kids. So, yeah, the business has suffered from it. The news business has suffered for it because of a, a much more narrow mindset. And, and there's an epilogue to the book, just very short, but it, the end of the book describes in this epilogue how I got hired at the Washington Post. I had left the star, as is told in the book, because they, they really said I had to graduate college. If I was going to stay on as a reporter, even though I'd been a reporter, it was insane. There was one managing editor who insisted on this, whereas all the other editors at the paper said, hey, well, this is crazy. He's been a reporter. He's held his own with experienced reporters who are 25, 30, 40 years old. And he's covered all this stuff. But the managing editor. Do you see a way back from this? No. Do you see journalism changing back towards what it used to be? Can a kid like Carl Bernstein ever get a break today? Pretty unlikely. Uh, and I tell kids when I go to colleges or when I go to high schools or anywhere else that just get your foot in the door. If you get your foot in the door, you might be able to do it. But it's pretty, it's, it's very rare that it happens. So. And let me just say one thing about chasing history. There's a scene in this book, you might, you might want to describe it a little more, where I interviewed Barry Goldwater at the 1964 convention where he was nominated. The day he was nominated, I interviewed him by ham radio. Uh, as Goldwater was going out to the convention, I had heard or read somewhere that he was taking his ham radio. But Goldwater was a very quirky character. And I called his press secretary out there and said, could I interview Goldwater by ham radio from Washington? I said, what a great idea. So I found this ham radio operator in Arlington, Virginia, and we proceed to dial up on the ham radio apparatus, Goldwater, on the day he was nominated to be president. And uh, there is Goldwater on the other end, and he says, this is Zulu, Kilowatt, Roger, Jimmy. And we say back, well, this is uh, Roger... Uh, boy, happy time. And then we go on and proceed to have a ham radio conversation half the time. And I said to go, I said, Senator, how, how, how much are you going to win the nomination tonight? He says, oh, no, we got it locked up. I got 476 delegates. It's all wrapped up. I'm going to win the election. Then we went back to Zulu Kilowatt George. It's hilarious. <laughs> and so the scene I described to you with Goldwater that is in Watergate, where we go see him and Woodward and I, and he tells us about what happened in those last days of Nixon's presidency. He remembered I interviewed him by ham radio. That's a nice, that's a nice end. When I think about your career and all the stuff you've done, one thing about the news industry in those days too was people, and this is so beautifully described in your book, is people left the office and they went drinking. And on weekends, they were you were at this saloon or that saloon or that pub. People had no family life. And you yourself have had a famously tumultuous family life. Do you ever wish that you'd sort of been home by five and had one spouse the whole time and had a more conventional domestic life and not as big a career as you had? Oh, and I'm married 18 years. I have two great kids with Nora. Uh, Nora Ephraim, my late ex-wife, with whom uh, two of us made peace eventually. One of my sons is a great reporter at the New York Times, Jacob. My other son, Max, is a fabulous musician. He's a guitar player for both Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus, if you can imagine such a thing. We should have spent the whole time talking about that. Well, I was a rock critic, you know. I was a rock critic at the Washington Post. And when Max was two years old, and I would play the guitar badly, sing to him. He would bang a pot or something, and I could tell how musical he was. So I bought him his first guitar when he was three, and that's all he's ever wanted to do. But it seems like that domestic piece of 18 years of marriage and all that was achieved after a lot of years of domestic turmoil. And I'm basing this on stuff you've written and, and that others have written. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And I guess I just wonder, looking back, do you ever wish that you'd been on the road less or you'd covered fewer stories and been home for dinner more? I don't think you have it quite, quite right, which is to say domestic turmoil. 
I was married to Nora. And, and look, there's a bad, difficult period of my life after, after that marriage ended. You know, really hard time for me. And, uh, and after Watergate, in the sense of a hard time, I don't mean that in a, in a self-pitying way at all. Look, I, I'm responsible for, for the breakup of, of my marriage. Uh, but in terms of, of the kind of regret you're talking about, about a conventional life, um, I was a single for a, a long time, uh, but I've had wonderful relationships. So I wouldn't call it all such such turmoil. Look, you're my age. I think you don't regret the past. You learn from it. You embrace it, including the, the really difficult stuff that, that happened. And Look, no, I've had a fabulous life. I've had a big life, but also I've also had a quotidian life that that is filled with wonder. But yeah, I've had this big life. But I've, I look at the opportunities that that I've had. Uh, I was lucky to be at the right place at the right time. And there's there's some luck with this too. And it's also you know Woodward and I, you know we're now close for 50 years and we talk a couple times a week uh and you know i think that we both agree it's it's you get lucky but it's also you get these opportunities and it's what you do with well young man you're only getting started uh and we're very (laughs) grateful to you for being our guest and for this amazing book which again is is so you think of you know Carl Bernstein, you think Watergate, you think this kind of like hard hitting thing. The book is so warm and wonderful and just a thrill. Well, let me add one thing at the tail end of this about, about what this book is. Yes, it's a, about this kid uh, who gets the greatest seat in the country and, and what he does with it. But there is one overwhelming character in it. And he's my great mentor, the city editor of the Washington Star, Sid Epstein. So here's the other you talk about luck. Look, I've had the two greatest editors in newspapers you could ever have. Sid Epstein, in many ways, the opposite of Ben Bradley. But imagine that, to have had those two editors, both of whom eventually took me under their wing. Carl Bernstein, thank you so much for being on Unorthodox. The book is Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. 
And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor, Wayne Hoffman, and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and write. To the mailbox, some short, sweet letters this week. First of all, from Professor Ruth Mandel, an anthropologist at University College London. Hi, Mark. I enjoy listening each week. However, I was disappointed when you asserted Anne Frank was not German. She was. She was born in Frankfurt. The family fled and hid in Amsterdam. Keep up the good work. Yours, Ruth. Um, unsurprising that I got that wrong. I'm, as I've noted many times on the show, I've never even read her diary. I am <laughs> the least Anne Frank knowledgeable Jew there is. Thank you for correcting me. I'm going to pretend like you've never had a diary because you think it's like, it's too personal. You don't want to, you don't want to pry. <laughs> well, you're like, I have a lot of the young girls living in my house that I would not read any of their diaries. That's the girl dead code. Didn't her diary have a lock on it? Come on. I'm not going to break that lock. And second and finally this week, another short, sweet letter. Hi, I may be wrong, but I remember that a few years ago, there was a fundraising contest among the unorthodox co-hosts. Donors designated their favorite co-host and whoever lost would have to undergo some sort of trial. I believe that Liel won and was going to be required to come to some sort of reconciliation with the Belgian people, whom he often maligns. This doesn't seem to have happened. In fact, his rants seem more virulent than ever. What was this? Was the contest just a misleading ploy, or am I remembering something wrong? All the best, Kathleen Collins, Portsmouth, Virginia. Liel, indeed, I believe you were supposed to have a tycoon with the the Belgians, no? I was supposed to get cozy with the Belgians, you know, child rape capital of Europe. I never did, uh, clearly, evidently. And I should. But it was supposed to be like beer and waffles and a trip to the consulate or something like that. New year, new me. Let us uh, let us get started on that. Kathleen Collins, thank you for keeping Liel honest, doing the work that Stephanie and I should be doing. Our Gentile of the Week is the great Jürgen Kraus, a German software engineer, and a semi-finalist in the most recent season of The Great British Baking Show, or if you're like me, a Jurgen Kraus truther, the real winner of the show. He joined us to talk about the pavlova herd around the world and representing his family's Jewish faith in his flavors. Now, you're going to hear him also talking about the Feldenkrais method, which is a type of movement therapy through stretching and other gentle movements. I practice it, should I say, religiously, and we just didn't have a chance to get into it further in this interview. But if you're curious, drop me a line. Here is Jürgen Kraus. Jürgen, welcome to the show. It's an honor to be on. Thank you very much. It's kind of amazing because I feel like I'm watching you on TV right now because I'm watching you on Zoom. <laughs> on, on a screen. <laughs> on a screen. Zoom is a funny thing. And uh, yeah, I've got this 2D presence around the world, which is strange as well. I don't know. I think your 2D presence is actually quite three-dimensional. I think we have a lot of listeners who are going to be so, so, so excited that you're on. We probably have a lot of listeners who don't watch The Great British Baking Show, Great British Bake Off, you know, depending on where where in the world you are. So I think the best introduction to you, and the first question I, I really want to know is, can you tell us about the Passover pavlova? Um, yes. When you get onto The Great British Baking Show, Bake Off, of course you don't create all the recipes there and then you get a brief sometime before you have to prepare these recipes. You have to get them approved. There can't be plagiarism, for example. So everything has to be new. Everything has to be from scratch. And um, I took a lot of time with my wife walking in the hills uh, behind Brighton to develop these recipes. Typically three days development, just mulling over, getting an idea of flavor profiles, getting an idea of what it could look like. And frankly, I've never made a pavlova before. So that brief felt daunting. And somehow on this walk, I got the idea. I do like uh, the flavors of Passover seders. I didn't grow up Jewish. I grew up a Catholic. I married into this Jewish family, became part of some Jewish traditions, uh, the yearly seder, then my boy wanted bar mitzvah. We got involved in local Jewish community. That's how it all grew. 
I like these special flavors of Passover. As, as the judges called it, charoset. <laughs> My pronunciation can get terribly wrong. <laughs> no, yours was fine. Theirs was wiggy. As well as matzo shards coated in chocolate, Jürgen's pavlova will feature vanilla cream and a symbolic charoset paste. Um, yeah, so we have made this uh, Sephardic charoset, which uses dates and orange and other spices. It gets cooked. The Ashkenazi, you often get apple pieces and um, wine and things like that. So it's it's more liquid and more granular. This one is really like a paste. And my thinking was, if you have a pavlova sitting there, possibly for three hours in a tent, you need something that stops cream and orange juice from seeping into the meringue. So it is the ideal medium, the mortar holding pyramids together. Nothing better to stop the water from <laughs> seeping into <laughs> beaten egg white and sugar. Now, okay, look, not just watching you in the show, but like listening to you speak, like this confirms this bias that I long had, which is whereas cooks are people who could kind of, you know, improvise and sort of live in the moment, bakers are weird rule following engineer, like very kind of critical minded, scientific. Is that true? Because you seem to really plan this within an inch of, of everything. You're really in command of everything. Yeah, that's the interesting thing with Bake Off, that it brought these two worlds together for me. I cook a lot at home. So when I cook, I throw things together, I improvise, I get an idea of a flavor, and then I just go to the spice cupboard. And usually it works. Sometimes it's too much salt, but <laughs> usually the outcome is okay. In baking... When I started making bread, my idea was to be consistent, to have a consistency in what I'm doing, to, to be able to reproduce. If I make a tasty bread, I want to have it next week and the week after and the week after and see how it develops. And Bake Off brought it both together. Suddenly, I had to improvise on flavors in my bakes. I had to get more creative in areas I wasn't creative before. So... Um, and then comes the engineering. In the briefs, there are uh, requirements for the appearance of the thing. For example, the lamp, you had to do something 3D. You had to do something that defies gravity, which you wouldn't do in cake normally. Uh, you you had good to have good looks, combinations of unusual structures, textures, etc. So being fancy with shapes, being fancy with flavors, that came into baking through Bake Off. So I'm really amazed. Does that annoy you sometimes a little bit? Because looking at all of you, I'm assuming here are people who are probably like, not probably, who are evidently amazing at what they do and who around their dinner tables probably produce these like great, delicious treats. And all of a sudden they have to not only do that, which is hard enough, but also to make it gravity defying and like upside down and like kind of follow all these ridiculous made up rules that, that are just there for show. Is there a moment in which you say, come on, guys, like, isn't it enough to just make it a delicious cake? Like, why do I have to have all this, you know, festivities? Or or are you enjoying this aspect of the show? I enjoyed that. Absolutely. I didn't enter with the idea that I just put on like every day. It's a competition. It's national TV. Um, it, well, with worldwide reception, 20 million people watching me potentially. So <laughs> I'm not there to to kind of wing it and and make it easy for myself. There's a lot of stuff that Jewish viewers of the show have sort of felt got, got Judaism wrong in some ways um, through, through the context of the show. There's Paul Hollywood saying that a challah is a great bread for Passover. And then you come along and sort of you really respect those flavors and you suddenly are the one making a Passover dish. And so I wonder, I mean, did you feel that there was a lot on your shoulders? You're obviously very involved in your local Jewish community in Brighton, but did you suddenly feel like you were representing Jewish food and Jewish culture on TV? All, all Jews and all Jewish food ever. <laughs> um, this this realization was very exciting, actually. And that's something I didn't expect from the show, that I bonded with so many diverse groups out there, pretty much for every hobby or everything in my life I do. There's a specific group on social media that says, oh, Jürgen is there. I was really amazed um, how this resonated in the Jewish community. And um, I wouldn't call myself an expert in these flavors or in Jewish food law. Also, um, somehow it grew organic in my life by yeah, marrying into this family. And 
growing into the Jewish tradition, which a big part of which was uh, my son wanting bar mitzvah. And so when you had your, your introduction to, to, to Jewish life and culture, were there specific foods that, that you looked at and just said, no, I'm sorry, this is disgusting. I'm, I'm not eating this. Like what, what from that culinary world do you hate and, and what do you love? What kind of really delights you? Uh, I think the only thing that I tried to make and that didn't quite work and um, my family were unhappy with was, um, what's it called again? Ugh. Sweet carrots, these sweet carrots. <laughs> the Timus. Timus, yes. Might just have used the wrong recipe. But there's nothing which I would say I hate. Um, it's all very specific flavors, and they stay specific flavors. That's, to me, the amazing thing in Jewish food. You get this fusion everywhere. You get Japanese flavors mixed with European flavors, mixed with South American flavors. And in the end, everything tastes a bit too much, <laughs> too much spice, <laughs> too complicated, confusing. So if I have to feel to fish, it tastes like carp. That's what I want. <laughs> and it also bonds with stuff I've eaten in the Black Forest. Funny enough, there's a lot of crossover. Um, potato latkes, we call them differently, but it's essentially what it is. What in do you some call German them? traditions, uh, Kartoffelpuffer or Reibekuchen. And do you eat them with applesauce and yes. sour cream? Applesauce, sour cream, yes. So we, everyone was like, wait till you <laughs> try your first latka at the synagogue. And you were like, nope, I know these from the Black Forest. Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in Brighton, where you're from? I studied physics in Freiburg. I tried to get into um, the early music scene playing Sackbad, Baroque trombone. And then I booked a course. At the time, I was on a course becoming Feldenkrais practitioner. So that was part of the uh, fallout of my musical career. I got in, in contact with Feldenkrais Method and really thought it was amazing. I still think it's amazing. I became practitioner and I booked a course in England, went there and fell in love. And that's how I came to England. When you're on the set of the show, uh, I don't know if it bothered you, but it bothered me a little bit to watch as, as someone who sometimes gets called out for his accent by nameless people who should not be put on the spot right now, Stephanie Butnick. It's me. Liel's Israeli. <laughs> I am from Israel, and sometimes the accent, it comes out when I speak. Did it bother you when, when, when Matt or some of the other hosts just basically kind of, you know, put on a funny German accent as if that was kind of a joke? Was was that something that you were kind of good-humored about? Or were you like, guys, come on, I'm beating all of you at baking, so stop making fun of me. I didn't mind it. Of course, I, I could see it in the bigger context of uh, political correctness. And <laughs> but um, in that situation, I, it didn't bother me, especially because it just came from the judges and the comedians. It was to be expected. That happens. And it really didn't bother me. I mean, that Flintstone song. What do you think? <laughs> Great. I haven't heard that in ages. I translated it myself. Mm. Um, <laughs> it was some kind of made-up German. It was nice of Matt to sing it to me. And I know he got a German passport, actually. He went to the German embassy and sang it there. I don't know what they thought. Um, I couldn't really be bothered because I had other things to do. You're very gracious, but at the same time, watching an Italian win the German biscuit challenge, I mean, come on, that, that must have not sat well with you. This is your <laughs> black forest, man. <laughs> Did you feel territorial about that? No. Because I felt mad. No, it's, um, I had problems with the German week because it was very much a German week through the glasses of an Englishman. There were certain expectations certain cultural expectations, which I probably wasn't prepared to fulfill. Uh, there was also possibly a bit of uh, thing, cultural things lost in translation, but it's all right. I got to the semifinals. Don't worry. How famous are you in Brighton? Are you getting stopped all the time? It, it has died down a bit. It was never really um, that wild. I went to the BBC Good Food, Good Food Show, and there it was really, um, I was being mobbed, which was an amazing feeling. Didn't have that before. 
depends where I go in Brighton. In some areas, uh, TV culture is different. So you get recognized more. What about at synagogues? <laughs> Are they like, you're, you're in charge of the Kiddush, like every Shabbos from now on, you're baking us cookies. Well, the problem is with COVID, we don't have Kiddush. Um, so it's a bit unfortunate at the moment. We had uh, Tu Bishwat last week. And Tu Bishwat this year was a um, possibility to introduce our membership engagement project. My wife got involved in. So this was some kind of launch party, which was planned live. But then because of the rising COVID, we again did it via Zoom. But I had thought of making a cake and I got a cake to Rabbi's family. And what was that cake? It was a bunt cake with uh, seeds and dry fruit in it. Um, it was very nice. <laughs> you say matter of fact, I'm sure it was an absolute masterpiece. Did, did being on the show change at all the way that you handle cooking and, and baking at home are you are you sort of now like you know what i'm just gonna i'm just gonna order pizza i, I have no patience for this i'm, I'm done I, I gave my part i, I don't want to think about putting together cakes or cookies or pastries or anything uh there are these like that yes but there's also occasions when um well yes let's let's make something and let's put tempered chocolate on yes tempering chocolate happens don't have to spend any thoughts on it these things just got so easy. Second nature somehow. So you sort of won your way into our hearts with your Passover pavlova, and you're actually able to share a new recipe with us for Passover this year. Will you tell us a little bit about it? Every year we spend uh, Passover one seder with some of my wife's family in London, and uh, they have a tradition to bring out this plover, which is essentially a sponge, a fatless sponge, made with matzo meal and starch and lots of eggs. And um, it's eaten with steeped fruit. And usually it's hushed away very quickly. It's, well, you asked me about what, I, what do I hate about Jewish food? I don't hate anything about Jewish food. I find the taste quite interesting uh, in, in their character, in their special character for the holiday. And this plover is part of it. For me, it disappears from the table always too fast. So this is just a vanilla sponge. But I thought of this dessert and um, thought to organize it a bit, adding chocolate and yuzu powder. So this is a chocolate and yuzu plover. It's quite a dry sponge, ready for Passover using matzo meal and starch and eggs, no other types of fat. And um, we had it for three days now. It improves. Um, it has a wonderful citrusy flavor, the yuzu you can't really pinpoint it. It's different. It's not orange. It's not lemon. It's something in between. We had it with cherries and uh, cherries and syrup. Uh, you could imagine putting buttercream on if you're okay having dairy with your food or steeped fruit. Uh, so the possibilities are endless. Jürgen, we can't wait to taste it and we can't wait to organize this and every other pastry moving forward. Wonderful. I know you're very, very, very much enmeshed with your Jewish community, but you know something that we do each each week on the show is when we have non-Jewish guests, we give them the opportunity to ask us something that they've always wanted to know about Judaism. So I know you know a lot. Is there anything that's sort of always been confusing to you about food or culture or otherwise? Well, the food laws certainly are a bit confusing. <laughs> the kosher laws? Liel, can you explain them? Can I explain kashrut? Sure. You know, sit back. This will take about four and a half hours. I will tell you everything you need to know. Look, the, the, the interesting things, it, it, being completely serious, the interesting thing is that the only honest answer for why is we don't know. I mean, it's it's supposed to be by design. Yeah, you could play this historical game. Well, it's because pigs weren't, you know, clean or because they didn't have any other uses and therefore, et cetera, et cetera. But the real honest emotional theological answer is that there are things that are super rational. And this defies all explanation. It it requires entry into it requires enchantment, right? It requires believing uh, in this thing, which which I think from as as someone who enjoys cooking very much, although is horrible at I mean, beyond horrible at baking, I kind of think it gets something really right about food, which is there's there's magic at the heart of it, right? This is why the British show is the British Bake Off is so great because there's this fundamental enchantment uh, about about entering into a kitchen, taking these ingredients that just lie there and turning it into like 
a lamp and a book that are, you know, a four layer. Like it's it's alchemy almost. And and I kind of like that, you know, construct is the same. It's like, why? Because. I, th- I think you have a very good point. So it's the restriction, really. It's to, to work within a restriction to, to become free. That's like the perfect summation of, of both baking and the Jewish experience. <laughs> <laughs> Working within restrictions to become free. I love that, Jürgen. That's amazing. Jürgen, you, you were and remain our hero. We are so grateful to you for everything, for this recipe, for, again, as far as we're concerned, winning this season. We do not accept this revisionist kind of <laughs> ending that the show had. As far as we're concerned, the semifinals were the last legitimate episode. And thank you so much for being our guest. Yeah, it, it has been a honor. Great, great fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a shout out to super listeners, Mindy Rappaport and Ethan Gross. They welcome baby girl Lyra Ashira Gross, and we're so excited for them. Mazel tov. Lyra Ashira. Strong, strong name. My Mazel tov is to our tablet colleague, Matthew Fishbane, who has created a beautiful new tablet product. Um, for those of us who are, who are lovers of analog technology, of paper, of printable stuff, magazines you hold in your hand, he helped tablet develop a new weekly printable digest of our best stories from the week. It's called The Tab. It's a beautiful PDF that you can download, print out, staple, and then and then take with you. If, you. if we're just putting up too much content on the web and the pixels are hurting your eyes and you want a nice little print product to take with you on the L or the T or the tugboat or in the handsome cab, we now have one. And it's, it's gorgeous and it's well curated. And I would encourage everyone to go to tabletmag.com and subscribe to The Tab. But that was, it was Matthew Fishbane's hard work and I want to give him a mazel tov. And Liel, do you want to take us home? Yeah, well, well, you're old-fashioned, middle-aged, analog man, you. I am done with the TikTok, like the kids, because I'm of course. Young, and, young and cool and spend a lot of time on the, on the TikTok. You know I'm cool because I'm calling it the TikTok. Are you on uh, Talk? I want to issue a special shout-out. Again, as the kids say, you issue a shout-out to one <laughs> Miriam Anzovin. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Miriam. She's the brain and the talent behind a TikTok account, page, uh, emanation, whatever the kids say, called Daily Duff Reactions. She is a young, non-Orthodox woman who has a Daily Duff Yomi TikTok account, which is really funny and really kind of filthy in just the right way that honors the spirit of the Talmud. I think uh, a lot of people this week all over the Orthodox and Orthodox adjacent communities were talking about her. Some were big fans. Others were kind of offended by uh, some of the four-letter words. But as anyone who's obsessed with Talmud study knows, you can never have too much Talmud. You can never have too much raunchy Talmud. And Miriam Anzavin, Daily Duff Reactions, rock the flippity floop on. So she's the queen of Talmud talk, is what you're telling me. It's like coffee talk. Coffee talk. But it's Talmud talk. Talmud talk, and it's T-O-K. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, that's me, Stephanie Butnick, and Leah Leibovitz. Executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show along with Robert Scaramuccia, and our brand new associate producer, Quinn Waller. No longer the Quintern, now the Queditor and Quaducer. Tablet Studios managing producer is Sarah Fredman Ader, who's moving on from Unorthodox to produce all sorts of other new shows for us. We love her and appreciate everything she's done for us over the years. We hope we will survive her absence from the Unorthodox weekly production schedule. We also have some new Tablet Studio staffers because we're expanding in 2022. Our new executive producer is Jerome Rusquet. Our brand new director of strategy and partnerships is Tanya Singer. So send some notes to all of them. Welcome them aboard. We are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Not yet on the TikTok, but who knows? Anything's possible. You can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Theme music by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Andrea Zanardo of Brighton and Hove Reform Synagogue in Brighton, New York. And we come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.